0: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today's gonna be another Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. I'm gonna do my best to get through as many of these as I can while keeping the episode on the shorter side. So first question up is from at PK Pina, and she asks, does it make a difference after you meet adequate protein if the rest of your calories come from carbs or from fats? And it's a wonderful question, but it does require some context because the truth is it depends on what your goal is. If your goal is fat loss and body comp, no hitting calories and protein are most important. Your carb to fat ratio thereafter will not have a meaningful impact on your fat loss and body comp goals. Period. You should allow personal preference to dictate where your carbs and fats fall. Some days might even be higher carbs. Some days are lower fat or higher fat. No, that doesn't mean you need to be higher carb on your training days and higher fat on your rest days. It doesn't need to be that complex. Hit your calories, hit your protein and let your carbs and fats fall within personal preference. Now the one caveat to that would be, man, just keep an eye on your fats and make sure they're not going you know, consistently below 0.3 grams per pound of body weight. And no, if you have one low fat day, it doesn't mean your hormones stop producing, your immune system stops working. Man, consistently. So just make sure you're not consistently going really low on fats, really low being you know, below 0.3 grams per pound on a regular basis. So that's for fat loss and body comp. When it comes to performance, is it really the same answer? Maybe. Yes, I would say calories and hitting adequate protein are still most important, but you might want to teeter a little bit closer towards a slightly higher carbohydrate approach, specifically for uh, forms of exercise that are more glycolytic, team sports, endurance athletes, um, even people trying to maximize hypertrophy with higher volume training. So what that might look like is hitting, you know, start by setting your protein at 0.8 to 1.2 grams per pound of body weight. And then maybe you want to sit on the lower end of fat, maybe in that 0.3 to 0.4 grams per pound of body weight so that you can have the rest of your calories from carbohydrates. Now, again, I'm not saying that everybody needs to go super high carb if you wanna build muscle. You can absolutely build a ton of muscle with a, a, with the first approach of hitting calories and protein and not worrying about the rest, absolutely. All I'm saying is it's worth considering if you've never, if, if your goal is maximizing performance and potentially maximizing muscle gain in a high volume program, man, you might just do better with a little bit more carbohydrates. Again, personal preference is gonna reign supreme and calories and protein are still going to be by and large, most important. Awesome. Great first question. Second question, ooh, this is a good one too. It's from L Poly6. And she asks, Can you explain how lifting weights doesn't make everyone massive and bulky? Man, this is a good one. Um, four things come to mind. And the first thing that I want to get out there is that, man, bulky is subjective. And as much as I'd love to rattle off and why you're never going to be bulky and why, you know, it's super hard and it requires a calorie surplus and all this stuff, man. People have different definitions of what bulky is. You might look at a fitness model and think that's bulky. Someone else might think that that looks great and that's what they want. And you might look at a CrossFit Games athlete. It's fresh on the mind from the games this weekend. You look at those women, they have a, a ton of muscle. They're super muscular. They're tremendous athletes. But you might look at that and say, nope, that's too much. I don't want that. That to me is bulky. But someone else might say, no, actually, that looks great, I want that. So just to be clear, to set the scene, bulky is subjective. And anybody who's telling you that like, you know, you're never gonna be too big or, man, those are subjective terms. And if you think you're getting too muscular, I respect that and I understand that not everybody's gonna wanna look the same way and have the same idea of what their end goal uh, uh, physique-wise is. So bulky is subjective. But if we're talking about something like, looking like the CrossFit Games athletes, like a like a bodybuilder, like a fit fitness uh, or physique competitor, man, you're only going to get physically larger if you are consistently eating in a calorie surplus and consistently training hard. And those are two big uh, um, boxes you need to be checking before this even becomes a conversation worth having. Like most people asking this question just aren't in a place where they're consistently eating a surplus and consistently in a really hard, you know, hypertrophy style programming. Like this is not the case. Becoming massive or bulky has way more to do with calories than it does lifting. And even within the context of lifting, you have to be lifting quite a bit and with quite a bit of intensity to elicit some of the responses that you think you're gonna get. So you're only going to get bigger if you're consistently eating in a calorie surplus and training hard. And even if you're training hard, nothing happens without that calorie surplus thing. And I'm not saying you can't build muscle, you can. I'm talking about uh, uh, growing it I- in size in an appreciable manner to a point where you'd say, oh, my body has really changed shape. I'm looking bulky and massive and uh, um, you know big. That's only going to happen Consistently eating in a calorie surplus. If you're not in a surplus, if you're training hard at, in a deficit, you're you're gonna get what you you know what most people will say they want, which is being toned. If you're training hard and you're at maintenance, you're gonna be recomping. You're not gonna be getting. You're not gonna be massively changing your body shape at maintenance. The only time you will see your body grow, in my opinion, to an amount that you would say, "Hey, I'm getting bigger. I'm getting bulky." is in the context of more calories. So when people look at the weight room and they're like, oh, I don't want to lift because I don't want to get bulky. Getting quote unquote bulky, yes, it's subjective, but in my opinion, what most people mean, what I think they mean when they say that is only going to happen in the context of consistently eating more calories. It has way more to do with calories than it does about lifting. The idea of lifting weights isn't gonna make you bulky. Consistently eating more calories and lifting heavy may make you get slightly bigger, but, Man, that brings me to the next point. It's fucking hard. Even if you are in a surplus, even if you are lifting heavy, it's fucking hard. Like the people you don't want to look like train way more than you, way harder than you, and likely eat a fuck ton more than you and on a more consistent basis. Like even if you said, yeah, I'm in a surplus and I'm lifting hard, man, it still takes a long time for you to build an appreciable amount of muscle. It does. It's fucking hard. A lot of people listening to this have been trying to, myself included, get you know too bulky for, for years now. And I, again, that that is subjective. You might look at me or you might look at somebody else and say, okay, that's bulky and that person did it in such a way. I, I understand, I, that was my first point. Bulky is subjective, it certainly is. But man, growing muscle to an appreciable degree in which you, you change the shape of your body to a large amount is hard. It takes training a lot, training really hard, eating a fuck ton and doing all of that consistently. And it's not like, people use this example all the time. It's not like you get in your Prius and you drive to work and you're nervous about becoming a NASCAR driver. Like, it's not that simple. It's really hard. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of calories and it takes a lot of time. So, and my last point would be that it's, it's usually like, it's usually quote unquote newbies who are saying this. People are new to the gym, right? Um, they're not familiar with lifting weights. And they look at the weight room, they look at the dumbbell rack, they look at that section of the gym, like, oh, I don't want to go there because I don't want to get bulky. Man, if you're a newbie, which is quite often the people that are saying this, you are actually someone who's in a unique position to recomp and somebody who does not need a surplus to build muscle and lose fat. You can actually, like, it's the irony is the people that are saying this are quite often people that have the capacity because they're so new to training to actually recomp, change their body, get more quote unquote toned without actually needing to be in a surplus. So it's kind of like uh, you're nervous about something that one, is extremely hard, two, uh, requires things that you're not likely going to be doing and three, uh, you know, you're nervous about something that you probably don't even have to do because you're new to training and you can probably just recomp. And if you have slightly more body fat than you want, you can probably just go into a deficit and lift weights and lose fat and build muscle and trend in the direction that you want to go. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's bulky is subjective. Everyone's going to have a different definition of what that means, but it likely has more to do with consistently eating more calories than it does about lifting and it's fucking hard and takes a long time, takes a lot of effort, likely more than you're going to put forth, and that's not a shot at you. I'm saying the people that you don't wanna look like are likely doing things you're just not going to do. And third, it's usually newbies that are saying this, or fourth, whatever, it's usually newbies who are saying this, which are the exact people who probably don't even need a surplus to trend towards being toned because you can recomp. Awesome, it's a good question. Um, Yeah, I suppose I I would, yeah, let's not even go there. Next question is from Vargs96, and he asked, what up, Connor? He asked, is there any benefit of pre-exhausting the muscle group before hitting a compound lift? There are two, maybe three reasons that you might want to, but for a lot of people, a couple of these won't apply. And the first reason that comes to mind why you might wanna pre-exhaust, and for those of you guys listening, pre-exhausting, for example, and I guess this is the example I'll use for the for the answer here, is like, before you do a set of squats, which are their, uh, squats are a compound lift and they primarily work your quads. Pre-exhausting would mean doing a set of leg extensions and then immediately going after that to squat. You pre-exhaust the quads so that they are tired going into the squat. Is there any benefit to doing that, right? And again, two, maybe three reasons, but for a lot of us, myself included, this first one doesn't apply. The first reason is that maybe you're so fucking strong that your compound lifts are so strong you have to lift so much weight that it causes the exercise to be so systemically fatiguing that it's just not even worth doing at that point. Or it, it's not that you you could have better options at that point. And what, what does that mean? Why, why does that matter? Well, for example, like if there's somebody listening in to this and they, you know, take two hypothetical people, one person squatting 135 pounds for 10 reps, another person much stronger squatting 405 for 10 reps. Now, let's say the RPE, the rate of perceived exertion, the relative intensity is the same. The person squatting 135 for 10 says, man, that was really, really hard. And the person squatting 405 for 10 says, yeah, that was really, really hard. Now, you might say, they're pro- wouldn't they be equally fatiguing because one person's just much stronger, can handle a lot more, and the person who's lighter, you know, it's equally fatiguing for them to do what they can do for 10 reps than it is like the 135 for 10 for the, for the Weaker person in this example, would you would think it would be equally fatiguing as the 405 for 10 for the stronger person, but it's just not. At some point, the more net weight that you are moving, even if it's relatively for the same amount of RP, let's say, it's more fatiguing. So the person who's doing 405 for 10, that just is so much weight that it is so fatiguing to the system, not necessarily, yes, the muscles can handle it, but to your central nervous system, And so what that person might want to do, instead of like at one point you just get so fucking strong. Like another example I think of is somebody who's um, deadlifting at some point, man, if you're deadlifting 500 pounds, man, you do three sets of those, you can just go home after that because you're so mentally and systemically fatigued. So why might pre-exhausting be a a good tool in this example? Well, let's say you take that guy who's doing a, a set of 405 pounds on the squat for 10 reps. At some point, it's so systemically fatiguing that he might consider fatiguing his quads beforehand so that instead of doing 405 for sets of 10, which are extremely fatiguing for him systemically, maybe he can do 315 for 10. So you, what you can do is you can he can do a set or she can do a set of uh, quad extensions, right? Knee extensions that fatigue the quad, and then you go right into your set of squats and your quads are more fatigued, so that you don't have to use as much weight to bring the quads closer to failure using a complex uh, compound lift like squatting. Now, I'd say to some degree you can also achieve this by just putting squats later in your workouts, and yes, for a lot of you guys listening, normally, for us normal humans that are not squatting 405 for 10, you wanna put your squats first. You want your hardest, most technically demanding, most compound, uh, exercise that you're lifting the most weight to come first when you are fresh. You know, for most of us, we don't want to squat at the end of the workout when you're when you're burnt and you're fatigued. But in this context of somebody who's really, really ridiculously strong, they might be better off going into their squats with slightly more fatigued quads so they don't have to use as much weight, so it's not as systemically fatiguing. Now, second reason, the the last two might be a, a bit more um bit more applicable to some of us, <laughs> myself included. The second reason is if you're having trouble making a muscle group the limiting factor of an exercise. So squats, again, are a really good example. Um, if you're squatting, and every time you finish, you rack your set of squats, you you step out of the rack and you're like, man, I'm fried, but what, what was I working? You're like, I don't even know what I was working. I was just trying to stand the fuck up. I don't know if my glutes hurt, my quads hurt, my lower back hurts, my core hurts, my upper back hurts. Like, a lot of times I'm squatting and I rack the bar, and for me, my cardiovascular system, man, if I'm doing it sounds pathetic, but if I'm doing six, seven, eight, nine or 10 reps of squats, like anything more than like six or seven, I usually rack the bar because I just can't fucking breathe. So for me, sometimes it's difficult to make my quads the limiting factor in my squats. Um, And that's probably mostly because I'm, I don't have a good work capacity. Like that's probably a me problem. That's not, it's a, it's a problem of uh, I I lack the aerobic capacity to kind of keep up with six, seven, eight, nine sets, uh, uh, reps of squats. So I sometimes will put squats a little bit later in my workout occasionally, um, when my quads are a bit more fatigued and they will become the limiting factor because they're already a little bit tired. All right? I hope that makes sense. If you're having trouble, make like your target muscle should be your limiting muscle. And if you're doing squats and every single time you rack the bar, you're like, I don't even know what I was working, I'm exhausted, I don't feel it anywhere. Like maybe experiment with some of that pre-fatigue. Um, I still think a lot of people would do well to just make sure their technique is solid and make sure they're, you know, range of motion is solid and make sure that they're working really hard and most of the time the chips just fall where they may and you're still gonna grow really great. But if you're not feeling a goddamn thing in your quads, one of the things you might wanna do is maybe try some pre-exhaust or maybe try putting them a little bit later in the workout, Um, which is the third point is that if you're trying to improve a mind-muscle connection for an exercise, maybe it can be helpful, right? If you go into your squats with fatigued quads, and somebody asked me later in the, in the Q&A about my favorite le- quad or super, er, leg superset, so I'll go over this. But if you're having trouble feeling your quads in the squat, maybe try doing a set of leg extensions and then doing a set. Um, truthfully, I, th- I still think most people out there are going to do better by just doing squats first, not doing any pre-exhaust. It's a technique that is doesn't apply to most people listening. I don't want to spend too much time talking about it because it only really matters if you're really, 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 really strong um, and you have to use so much weight on a certain compound exercise that it just becomes really systemically fatiguing and just not worth it. Um, in the other two contexts, like I said, if you're having trouble making that muscle group the limiting factor or you want to improve the mind-muscle connection, you can experiment with some of this. Next question, Han Hewitt asks, if I'm, oh, uh, if I unintentionally eat above my daily calorie goal, is it okay to compensate with lower calories the next day? Wow, what a good question. I'm going to try and keep it super short and sweet and to the point here. The answer is, again, it depends. Mathematically, right? In the in the context of if you do that, will you still make the same amount of progress? Like if you have some higher days and some lower days, but you end the week at the same amount of calories, will you make the same amount of progress as you would having had static calories? Yes, mathematically, it is totally fine to have some higher days over your average and some lower days under your average as long as you end the week at the same average. Mathematically, it is 100% okay. However, habitually, practically, emotionally, it may reinforce some negative binge restrict cycles. Um, Not always, and, and I'll talk about this at the end, but sometimes, once you understand the concept of having some higher days, some lower days, as long as you even out the same, at the at the right average, at the end of the week, you'll make the same progress. Once you understand that concept, some people are gonna adopt it and feel really good about it. And, you know, some days are a couple hundred calories over, some days are a couple cal- calories under, and they're not really, you know, um, playing around too much with their calories. They're kind of letting that scenario come to them. But sometimes uh, what happens is you start to rationalize a binge eating episode or a a day going way over your calories because you are like, oh, you know, I'll just, I'll just go lower on the other days. No problem. And it looks like, you know, you eat more and you feel guilty, but then you're like, okay, I'll compensate. And then you do that for a couple days. And then, you know, you're going out to eat. And instead of maybe keeping things within a couple hundred calories, you're like, you know what, I'm just going to go all out. And tomorrow I just won't eat at all. And sometimes we can take that compensatory actions, those compensatory actions, and we can take them too far and we can use the knowledge that you can compensate as an excuse to binge. And I've seen this a lot. Some people do really great with what we call calorie cycling, right? Calorie cycling, I have a whole podcast on it, I'll link it in the description, uh, talks about this exact concept of as long as you end the week at a certain calorie total, you can split that up however you want and you'll make the same amount of fat loss progress. Now. Again, just a reminder, not everybody's going to do well with that. Not everybody's going to be able to understand that concept. And it's like a tool, man. It's like a a tool that can either be used for good or it can be used to send you off the rails. And it can be a great tool. And if you use it in a way that enhances your life, that's great. If you're using it in a way that's rationalizing a 4,000 calorie day, Right, instead of having, you know, let's say you're averaging 2,000 calories a day. Instead of having 2,500 calories on one day and 1,500 on another day and averaging out at 2,000 across the two days, if you're using it to have 4,000 on one day and starve yourself with zero calories on the next day, man, it just might not be a tool that's serving you. So to answer your question, mathematically, it is 100% okay to compensate with lower calories on the next day or on subsequent days, right? You don't have to take all those calories from one day. If you have 500 more calories on one day, You can have 500 calories less on the next day or 100 calories less over the next five days or obviously any other distribution that you want. But you have to ask yourself, is this strategy, is this, is calorie cycling serving me? And the answer is it isn't always. And just make sure that's enhancing your life and letting you live your life more to the fullest, more like uh, uh, like you would if you weren't dieting. But if it's causing you to rationalize some poor decisions that you think are not serving you, then you don't have to do it. Awesome. Next question is from Kelsey J Fit, and she says, "Favorite leg day superset." Man, I'm gonna catch heat for this answer. I am not a big superset guy, um, especially on leg day. I love the concept of supersets. I think they're great. They're a wonderful time saver, and studies have shown they don't take away from the hypertrophy benefit of each individual exercise. And practically, they don't really take away from the effectiveness of, of the workout. Right? It's not like, you know, you're you do a set of curls and you go do a set of tricep extensions and it's not like the tricep extensions are gonna be wildly worse off because you started with curls. It's not the case. They're just not interfering muscles. And especially if you're working uh, um, uh, antagonist muscles, so muscles that are kind of on the opposite side of a joint, so your biceps and your triceps, your quads and your hamstrings, um, you can do really great and save a lot of time and and kind of pack a little bit more volume into a shorter period of time, which is awesome. But man, I really think when it comes to me, I'm just too lazy. Like especially on leg days, I get so tired from most of my leg movements. And I also find, like we talked about before with the squats, I find that my cardio tends to fatigue so much if I'm doing step-ups, if I'm doing lunges or squats or any hinge movement. Man, I can superset machines. So I think my answer would be like a leg extension and a hamstring curl, um, which would, again, identify would be one of those antagonist supersets where you're working two antagonist muscle groups. Um, But I don't know why. I'm just not a big superset guy. I find that it doesn't take a lot for me. I, I don't know if it's again, I don't know if it's because I have asthma, but I find that like I need a, like a minute to have my my cardiovascular system, my aerobic system come back to baseline before I can really have another really good set. Now I can superset arms, buys and tries, you know, cable work, um, leg like like I said, leg extension and, and hamstring curls. But if it's anything compound, I tend to just be like, man, I'm I'm aerobically, I need a second. Um when it comes to leg days though. I guess there's two. Now that I'm thinking, there is one that I really do like, and it's actually not an antagonist superset, it's an agonist superset, where you're working two of the very similar muscle groups. Um, is leg extensions? That's funny. It, it does circle back around to the pre-fatigue discussion. I like ending a quad-focused leg day with leg extensions into like a heel elevated goblet squat with a pause, like something that you know. Obviously, the heel elevation will allow me to move my knees a little bit forward, make the squat a little bit more quad dominant, and going into that with fatigued quads just fucking burns like a motherfucker. Like, is does that make it better? Does that make does it do we circle back to the pre-fatigue and say, oh, it's better because you pre-fatigue your quads? No, but it's fun and it hurts and it makes the workout more enjoyable and it really helps me smoke my quads, which is a lot of fun. Um and yeah, I guess, I guess when it comes to intensity techniques for leg day, I do prefer using myo reps, which are like a, a rep a rest pause technique, and drop sets. Um, specifically for stuff for like, like leg presses and then obviously your machine work, your extension curls. and curls. And maybe I'm just being a little bitch and I die aerobically with two different movements. If I'm, I can't imagine doing like a, like lunges and then squats, like dear God, like it uh, was just like my cardio would fatigue so fast that it just wouldn't get anything from the movement. Um, but yes, I do like the leg extensions into heel elevated goblet squats. I do like supersetting my leg machine movements that obviously aren't cardiovascularly demanding. Um, But for the most part, on like days, I prefer mile reps and drop sets if I'm looking to like really fuck myself up. Good question though. Um, Cool. Next question is from, ooh, very good dog training. Uh, What up, Steve? (coughs) P.S. If you need dog training and you're in the North New Jersey area, um, actually you could be anywhere around the world, does online, but follow my boy at very good dog training. Cool. Moving on to his question here. He asks, what happens if you don't spend long enough at maintenance in between your cuts? Wonderful question. I have a whole first of all a whole podcast on maintenance phases. Um, but the answer is pretty simple. Let's take an example. Let's say you cut for 12 weeks. All right. You cut for 12 weeks and you lost a significant amount of fat, but you still have more fat to lose and you know that you're gonna have subsequent cuts in the future. And let's take two different examples of what this person might do. So the first example is you cut for 12 weeks and then you go to maintenance for two weeks and then you start your next cut, all right? Well, at the end of that 12-week cut, you accumulated some diet fatigue. Your your food focus was high. Your hunger was high. You were low energy. Your workouts were starting to suck. Your sleep wasn't great. You were a bit higher stress, more irritability. Um, You weren't feeling very good for all intents and purposes. And maybe at the end of two weeks, you're starting to feel pretty good again. Well, you say, okay, I'm feeling pretty good. Let's go back into a cut. How you felt at week 12 of your first cut is how you'll feel at the end of like week four of your next cut. And basically the the concept would be the longer you spend that maintenance between cuts, the longer you buy yourself on the back end in your next cut. So if you cut for 12 weeks and then you go to maintenance for two weeks, you did not buy yourself another 12 weeks of cut. You bought yourself another couple of weeks, right? You didn't rest for a long time. So you're not gonna have a lot more energy on the back end of that. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, imagine you didn't get enough sleep. It's like, okay, I had a 24 hour, I had a 20 hour day and then I slept four hours. like you you were exhausted at the end of that day when you went to sleep and then you only slept four hours, you're gonna be exhausted pretty soon on the back end of that sleep because you didn't rest long enough. So it's probably a better uh, a better practice to do something like eight to 12 weeks in a cut and then whatever, six to 12 weeks at maintenance. Um, the longer you spend at maintenance, the longer you'll buy yourself on the back end of that before you start feeling like shit again. But so what normally happens is you you cut and then you go to maintenance, and after like maybe two or three weeks, you probably start to feel good again, right? This happens quite often. I'll have somebody who's like, okay, we're gonna do maintenance phase, they're all psyched because they're, you know, have a bit of diet fatigue, they're not feeling good, and I'm like, okay, we're gonna go to maintenance, and they're super psyched, but man, by like week, day 20, like on the third week there, people start to feel good again. You know, they start to feel full, more glycogen, workouts are going better, their stress has come down a little bit, sleep's improved, you know, you have more food, so your life is better, and people are like, yeah, man, I'm feeling really good. When can we cut again? And it's this, uh, it's very sneaky because you start to feel good again, but you should wait and you should feel good for a longer period of time before turning back around and going into a cut. So I caution you against feeling like you should go into a cut the minute you feel good again. Get yourself to a point you feel good again and stay there for weeks and weeks and weeks and then go back into a cut and you'll be able to have a more productive, longer cut. Um, yeah, I usually say it's best to stay at maintenance longer than you want to. And even if you feel okay after two weeks, it's likely, you're you're likely much closer to feeling like shit than you think. Um, what I will say is that no matter what you do, the more cuts you do in a row, um, the shorter they will probably be able to be, regardless of how well you're, you, you're doing with uh, the length of your maintenance phases. So if you cut for 12 weeks and then eight weeks of maintenance, you might not get another 12 weeks on the back end, right? You might get another 10 weeks or another eight weeks Um, and each subsequent cut that you do, you might have to do a longer maintenance phase and accept that you might have a slightly shorter cut. Um, it's not like you're going to do 12 on six off, 12 on six off and just forever. Um, it's, it's likely the case that maintenance phases should get longer as you go, you know, with each subsequent cut and cutting phases should probably get shorter as you go just because that diet fatigue will come on a bit faster each time you diet. Awesome. Wow. That's the end of the questions. Um, Wonderful. Wonderful. Those are all the ones that I took from the Instagram box and I appreciate all you guys asking. Thank you so much. I'm going to do another one of the Q and A's this week. So stay tuned. Um, If you want your question asked on the podcast, just keep an eye out on my stories. I'm going to be putting an Instagram box and I'll let you know, Hey guys, this is for the podcast. Um, I know a lot of you guys asked. I thought that I thought I took enough of the questions, but I guess I had a couple more minutes here. Um, Next time I will circle back around and take a couple more. So, thank you guys for asking. If you want your question asked, just throw it in the question box. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram, or you can email me, Jordan at JordanLipsFitness.com, or check out the website, JordanLipsFitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.